Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. <laughs> The curators at Hever Castle, Alison Palmer, Dr. Owen Emerson, and Kate McCaffrey, have made a startling, wonderful discovery. They have found the very book of hours that was painted by Hans Holbein into his portrait of Thomas Cromwell in around 1532. It is generally housed in the Wren Library at Trinity College, Cambridge. Thomas Cromwell was, of course, Henry VIII's right-hand man, from around 1532 to his execution in 1540, he had been a servant of Cardinal Thomas Wolsey, but he rose when Wolsey fell. He's considered by many to be the architect of Henry's English Reformation, helping Henry out of his marriage to Catherine, into the marriage with Anne, and out of union with the Roman Catholic Church. Which makes the discovery of this book, a thoroughly orthodox Catholic book of hours, a Catholic prayer book in Latin and English with illuminated pictures, especially intriguing. As we'll see, the team at Hever have proved convincingly through a watertight provenance trail that the book they've identified in the Wren Library is Thomas Cromwell's book. What is more, it is a printed book of hours from the very same batch as books of hours owned by Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn. Just like theirs, it was printed in Paris in around 1527 by Germain Ardouin, but unlike Catherine and Anne's books, which have been rebound in the centuries since, Cromwell's book retains its original silver gilt binding set with garnets. The curator's new research has identified the maker of that binding, Pierre Mongaud, goldsmith to the French King François I, and the date of that binding, between December 1529 and December 1530. In this podcast, I explore how the Hever Castle curators figured it out with the support of Dr. Nicholas Bell, the librarian at Trinity College, Cambridge, and what their discovery tells us about Thomas Cromwell and this period of Tudor history. Kate McCaffrey is an assistant curator at Hever Castle. It was her original research on Anne Boleyn's printed Book of Hours that now lives at Hever that first sparked the team's investigations into the same Book of Hours owned by Catherine of Aragon and now into a third copy of this Book of Hours owned by Thomas Cromwell. I asked her about how they discovered the secret and how they could be sure that this was Cromwell's book. We've actually been able to recover a really convincing provenance trail right from the book's donation to Trinity College Library in 1660 by a woman named Dame Anne Sadler, all the way back to Thomas Cromwell. 
And the key to that whole trail has been the Sadler name. And it was Anne Sadler who was married to Rafe Sadler Jr. And his grandfather was Rafe Sadler, who was a very close friend and protege of Thomas Cromwell. Those familiar with the War Four novels will have come across Rafe Sadler's name, and he's exactly. at the heart of it. So why did Anne Sadler hold on to these books? And then why did she donate them to Trinity College at the time she did? Anne Sadler is a really fascinating woman who I've really loved delving into in my research because she was an avid book collector and literary patron. She was really actively engaged with all the religious and political debates going on in the 17th century. And she had a very close relationship to her father, Sir Edward Cook, who was one of Elizabeth I's most prominent lawyers and Lord Chief Justices. And they shared this love of books. And it's actually to his alma mater, Trinity College, that Anne donates this particular book of ours, alongside another more glorious manuscript, now known as the Trinity Apocalypse, in 1660. But I think the dates are really crucial here as well, because this is obviously the year of the restoration of the monarchy. And there's actually a very interesting note that Anne Sadler leaves in 1649, right after the execution of Charles I, where she writes that she wants to donate these books into safekeeping, but she has to wait until the country is in the hands of the safe royals again. So she's a very staunch royalist, and she waits those 11 years until 1660, when she feels safe enough to donate this book to Trinity's care. If we go back to when it came into Ralph Sadler's possession, do we know when that happened? Can we prove that that exchange happened from Cromwell to Sadler? Well, we don't have an exact date or instance where we can prove yet that this is exactly when this exchange occurred. But we do know, uh, we have a plethora of evidence to suggest how close Thomas Cromwell was to Rafe Sadler, who really grew up in his household. He was a protege of Cromwell, much like Wolsey was the mentor to Cromwell, Cromwell was the mentor to Sadler. And so we have this very close relationship and Rafe Sadler actually names his son Thomas after Thomas Cromwell. Cromwell is actually the godfather to of Rafe Sadler's sons. And so we have this very close connection. And actually in 1529, in the only surviving will we have of Thomas Cromwell's, he decides to leave Rafe Sadler all his books. Now we don't know if that obviously ever ended up being the case because obviously Cromwell's end is not one that happens naturally. In his eyes, it was planned. He was executed for treason. But the intention is there from Cromwell to gift his books to Sadler. That's a really important detail. But as you say, there's this act of attainder. Cromwell is found guilty of treason. And when there's an act of attainder, which is you know an act through Parliament, it means that the person who's been convicted of treason has to give over all of their goods and possessions to the Crown. So at that moment, we could imagine that the book went to the king. But we also know that some of Cromwell's papers were got rid of before the king's men arrived to arrest him. So is one possibility the idea that actually the book was saved at that stage? I think that's a very likely possibility. I think we see that even with Anne Boleyn, with her execution and her treason um, accusations, her book still survives today, as we've seen. And I think that was, again, likely because it was gifted before she got to the stage of being imprisoned in the Tower. And I think it's the same with Cromwell. There were people loyal to him, as we know, like Rafe Sadler, who wanted to protect his memory and his legacy and their personal connections with him. And so I think it's definitely likely that this book was saved before it got to that point. And that's an interesting parallel that you've raised, that actually these books survive because someone wants to remember 
the person to whom they belonged before, with Anne, and now with Thomas Cromwell. That's exactly it. I think they are marks of personal loyalty. That's how we still have them today. So we're very lucky. And the picture in which the book is found exists in multiple copies, but does that also speak to this personal loyalty? I think so, absolutely. And we actually have an inventory of the Sadler household in 1623 of their house at Standon in Hertfordshire. And this is taken during the time of Rafe Sadler Jr., so his grandson, who is married to Anne Sadler, who donates the book to Trinity in 1660. And there's two items of interest to us in that inventory. One is that in their long gallery, they apparently have Cromwell's picture hanging there. And this is long thought, I think, by historians to at least potentially be the Holbein portrait that we have the book depicted on the desk in front of Cromwell in. And in the chapel, there is a book described as a gilt psalm book, which books of ours at this point were not as commonly produced. They'd fallen out of production. They contained psalms. And the gilt binding has always been the most recognisable feature of this book. So it's likely that that could be the book in question, which would mean the Sadlers had both the portrait with the book in it and the book itself. And that seems to me to make sense because there is a miniature of Cromwell, but otherwise, as far as I'm aware, there are only these three identical pictures of him by Holbein or after Holbein. And there may have been other pictures at the Mm -hmm. time, but there are no other extant pictures of Cromwell. So it seems very likely that it is, as you conclude, that the two things are in the same household. Absolutely. And I think it speaks to as well the reasons why Anne Sadler donated this book to Trinity in 1660, which is that she was aware of its provenance. I think what's always confused the Renan at Trinity College is why Anne Sadler donated this fairly humble printed book of ours, despite its beautiful covers, alongside a really glorious 13th century Trinity Apocalypse manuscript. But it makes total sense if Anne Sadler knew that this was not only a book that was owned by Cromwell, but also was a book that was painted by Holbein in a portrait likely hanging in their long gallery. Why did Anne Sadler not indicate that it was Thomas Cromwell's book? Very frustratingly, we don't have a copy of any letters that Anne Sadler sent to the Wren or to Trinity College explaining her donation. We only have the reply from Henry Fern, who was the master of Trinity College at this time, where he thanks Anne Sadler for her Blessed Virgin Howard book with the bejeweled binding. So we only have his reply, not her donation. So it's possible she did mention that it was Cromwell's book, but we just don't have that surviving evidence today. And how interesting that his reply says the Blessed Virgin, Mm. because it suggests he's speaking from a Roman Catholic perspective. So perhaps he saw in the book its value as being the contents rather than mentioning this great reformer who he wouldn't potentially be very interested in. Absolutely. I think that's a really important point. And I think at every stage, this book has been remembered either for its contents or for its beautiful covers. And it's been noted for its jewels and its silver work, but never for its original provenance. So it's possible that those overshadowed it at some point towards its later life. And you've tied them all together. (laughs) We've tried our best. (laughs) Dr. Owen Emerson assistant curator at Hever Castle, has been the driving force behind this research. He explains to me what objects feature in Hans Holbein's portrait of Thomas Cromwell, how these objects carry meaning, and what it means, therefore, that this book of ours was included in Holbein's masterpiece. I think there's almost a lost language, 
And I think this probably would have been very obvious to a 16th century audience. I think it was supposed to be obvious and it tells us a lot, I think, about Cromwell's past and his present as well. So we do have a very distinctive rug over a table here. And this is very much in the Turkish style. And we know that Cardinal Thomas Wolsey, whom Cromwell served, was a firm favourite of this particular style. In fact, he mass imported them into England. So I think there's a nod here to his former master and quite sentimental, I think, in a way. But then we have almost the present in this space. The table that Cromwell is sitting behind is covered in a green cloth. And this very much speaks to the board of green cloth which was a term applied to those who worked in the financial aspect of the court. We also have a letter here, which is wonderfully readable. We can read what is inscribed on there, and it is addressed to Cromwell from Henry, acknowledging him as master of the jewel house. This is a promotion that Cromwell has been given. And I think the other tools of Cromwell's trade, the purse here, the quill, which you can see has been used, is also telling us about his work, his career. And in the midst of all of this is the book. And of course it's bejeweled, it's covered in garnets. So I think it is closely related to this promotion. This was created around 1532. And it's almost a celebration, I think, of his year how far he'd come, how far he'd risen. So it tells us a lot, I think, about Cromwell. The book seems strangely important once you start noticing it. It's quite odd. It's this sense of hiding in plain sight because it's got those gilt-edged pages. This is silver gilt, so gold on top of silver. And it fairly gleams, doesn't it? It does, and it's almost three-dimensional. It's coming out towards the audience. It's almost the entry point, I think, into this portrait. Cromwell isn't looking towards us. He's looking very distinctively to this side. And this was highly unusual for Holbein. It's almost as if there's a missing part to this painting. So I think there are a lot of conscious decisions being made here. I don't think it's at all a surprise this was all carefully planned out and it speaks to an audience. I mean, we will be familiar with this. Most people will have seen a copy, at least, of Holbein's Ambassadors. Yes. And every object on those shelves has a meaning. So this is a device that Holbein has used elsewhere. And I'd like us to think a bit about what you think it might mean. So. This letter, as you pointed out, says to our trusty and right well-beloved counsellor, Thomas Cromwell, master of our jewel house, and the our meaning, of course, it's coming from Henry, right well-beloved. Do you think that there is a, some relationship here between this jewelled book and Cromwell having arrived as master of the jewel house? Is it further to reiterate that point, do you think? I do. I think it speaks to that promotion but we can't rule out the possibility that it's linked specifically to it. It might have been the case, considering that the book was printed in 1528, that this book was bound especially for that promotion. 
So we do know who bound the book, but we don't know who commissioned the binding. That's a mystery that we really hope to unlock. So let's think about our possibilities. There's Cromwell himself, newly enriched. There's Henry VIII. But there are other possibilities as well. But who else could it be? Because of the dating of the printing, we can't rule out someone like Cardinal Wolsey, for example. He, in 1528, very much knows that the king wants to annul his marriage. So it would account for Anne being given a copy, perhaps superior to Catherine's, which Kate McCaffrey's research beautifully showed. Although he's given one to Catherine as well, just in case, hedging his bets. Absolutely. And then, of course, there's a third individual who's very prominent in Wolsey's life at the time, and that's his right-hand man, Thomas Cromwell. So it might be, I think, that Wolsey could have been a candidate, certainly, for originally commissioning these texts. And then perhaps someone else had the book bound for Cromwell. So there is the possibility that Anne commissioned a batch from Germain Hardouin of this Book of Hours and had a copy later bound for Cromwell, who of course was on the cusp of making her queen. 1532 is such an interesting year because it's not just the year that Cromwell becomes master of the jewel house. It's probably the year that Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn marry. Yes. Now, we think of 1533 because that's the year when the official weddings take place. But more and more historians think that probably in October, November 1532, they secretly married. And that's when she conceived Elizabeth. And it's in 1532 that she's become Marquess of Pembroke, of course, and they go to France. So do you think that French trip might be related to this as well? Because one thing we can tell is that it might not be July when this is painted <laughs> because he's dressed <laughs> up very warmly. Absolutely. I mean, we don't have a definitive month that this painting was created. And you're so right. Everything rested in this moment for Anne and Henry upon having support of at least one major European power. So, of course, they go over to France to get approval, as it were, from Francis for the marriage. And who organises that trip? It's Cromwell. So, yes, it's a pivotal year, not just for Cromwell, but for Henry and Anne. And as you say, it is the moment that we now think that they finally tie the knot. So perhaps this is a royal bestowed gift. Maybe Cromwell has facilitated all of that. The trip to France, maybe the wedding. You know, is this a reward for his service? This is all speculation. We don't yet know if we ever will do who commissions the book and what it's signifying. But that seems to me at the heart of it because it tells us something about the relationship between Cromwell and Anne or between Henry and Cromwell or between Cromwell and the French king. I mean, there's so many possibilities. There really are. I think we have to look quite broadly at the court, not just in England, but also in France. And I think Cromwell is central to everything that's happening at this moment. So the possibilities may seem endless. I'm hoping we're able to hone in 
on those possibilities and perhaps rule certain people out and perhaps even inch closer to who was the original gifter. One final thing, you have discovered that Pierre Mango, the goldsmith who worked on the book, is involved with the Berlins in another way. Tell me about that and do you think that's a crucial clue? I do. We know that Pierre Mango was in Blois, where of course Anne was in service to Queen Claude of France. We know that he's moved in 1528 to Paris and just a short few months after this binding was placed on this book by Pierre Mongo, he creates a gold work chain for George Boleyn, who has been acting ambassador in France. So there seems to be a very close connection to the Boleyns at this very moment. So I'm hoping that might also lead us closer to who created and commissioned this book. Join me, Dallas Campbell, on Patented, a podcast by History Hit, where we bring you the fascinating histories of the world's most impactful inventions. We uncover the exceptional stories behind everyday objects. Snakes and Ladders is really a game about a karmic journey through stages of existence towards liberation. Look back in time to understand technologies of the future. One of the really interesting things about it is that it showed just how hard AI in the real world really is. And we examine unexpected origins. Who or what invented sex? Yeah, fish. Fish were the ones that invented copulation and made sex intimate for the first time. For the answer to those questions and a whole lot more, subscribe to Patented on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Join me for new episodes every Wednesday and Sunday. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
Alison Palmer, curator of Hever Castle, was the first to spot that the book in Holbein's portrait of Thomas Cromwell was the very book kept in the Wren Library. I went to Cambridge with my colleagues Kate and Owen to look at this beautiful book of hours under the watchful eye of Dr Nicholas Bell, who's a librarian at the Wren Library. And then the next day I saw this portrait of Thomas Cromwell and just thought, huh, I saw that book yesterday. (laughs) And what gave away that it was the same book? How did you know? What was it that clicked in your mind? I think it's the placement of the jewels, the clasp, that central boss. It's not as gilded now as it was in this portrait, but it was just a combination of all those things that made me think, oh, I saw that book yesterday. That's interesting. It's an amazing moment of serendipity that you had the visit, then you saw the portrait, so that they were close enough in time for you to connect it in your mind, because no one has done this before in the last 500 years. It literally is because I saw the book one day and then the painting the next. That is how I was able to make that connection. Obviously, I don't know whether we would have made that connection if it had been sort of more length of time between viewing the book and then seeing the picture of the painting. And it really is a tremendous discovery because it has the potential to really tell us something about Thomas Cromwell. It tells us about the religious circumstances of the age. It tells us about the politics. And there's just a thrill of the fact that we can pull this book out of the picture and have it in front of us, in our very hands. Well, probably not us, but, you know, curators can, like you. That's amazing. It is. There's been long-held discussions about Cromwell and about his religion and just how far he was going, how far people were pushing it at that time, because religion wasn't this stable thing anymore. It was very fluid at this particular period. And everybody sort of sees Cromwell as a reformer, but then he's got this very Catholic book, and Anne is a reformer, and she's got this very Catholic book. So I think all these questions that we've been having about Cromwell and Anne and the state of religion at that period of time, it will need more research, but I think it could very possibly help future scholarly research into this particular area of time and the progress of religious change at that period as well. Dr Nicholas Bell is the librarian of the Wren Library at Trinity College, Cambridge, which has housed this book of ours since it was donated to the library in 1660. And he gives some sense of the scale and importance of this discovery. It's particularly exciting to make this really strong connection because Anne Sadler, who gave it, only gave two books to the library at that time in August 1660. One of them was the terribly grand illuminated apocalypse, one of the grandest manuscripts from medieval England. And then the other was this book, which, well, to be fair, it does look very splendid. It looked less splendid until we had it polished recently. Our conservator has made it look much closer to how it originally appeared. But there were so many questions. Why would such a strongly, ardently Protestant lady own a book of Catholic devotion like this in the 1660s? But now, the finding that it was owned by Thomas Cromwell, it was connected directly through her husband's family, right to the centre of the court of Henry VIII. It gives a reason for retaining it all those years and a reason for ensuring its perpetual preservation in the library of Trinity College. There's a sense in which it's been hiding in plain sight, not only in your library, but also actually in the picture. It seems extraordinary at one level that it has taken so long, especially with such a good provenance, for the connection to be made. Why do you think it had been missed till now? 
I think part of the problem is that it's such an unusual book. To have a book bound in silver with jewels on it is a relatively unusual thing, especially at this period of the 1520s, 1530s. So those people who've studied the Holbein portrait over the years have often questioned, what type of book is this? Is it a prayer book? Is it some other type of book? Because it doesn't look like other books. In a way, that ought to make it so easy to work out what it is, to make that connection. But it does strengthen the hypothesis. It really confirms that it is the same book, not just another book that looks very, very similar. It seems to me the great question is who commissioned it? Was it a gift from Henry VIII? Did Cromwell, so wealthy by this point, buy it himself? Did it come from the French king? I know there's more work to be done here, but do you have a sense so far of which of these you would place your money on? I think that's precisely the problem. Having established this pretty well incontrovertible connection with Thomas Cromwell, then opens up so many other questions. The printer's work was well known, Germain Hardouin. His books had a very high reputation at the time and were well known as a luxury commodity. But then, having identified the silversmith, who was the goldsmith to the King of France, that raises the question, could this even have been a diplomatic gift from the King of France to the court of Henry VIII? We know that other work made in the same year was given by the King of France to the King of England. Or could there even have been a connection between Holbein designing some work? We know that he designed a lot of metalwork, including clasps for books in a very similar pattern to these. Could he even have advised that silversmith? And then the question of commissioning. Could we posit that Cromwell or even Anne Boleyn or maybe the King ordered several copies, a bulk order of these books of ours? Because let's remember that it's not just the copy owned by Anne Boleyn that's here at Hever Castle, but there's another copy that was definitely owned by Catherine of Aragon. It's so extraordinary to build this network of connections. It feels to me unheard of, actually, to have a network of books like this that we can chart in every way to the people who owned them. We know the printer, we know the goldsmith. You're a librarian, you'll know if this is unique or if this is the amazing find that it seems to me. How does it sit with you, this find? I spend as much time as I can trying to establish the provenance and the earlier ownership and history of particular books. But it's so rare for that charting of the prehistory of a book before it arrived in Trinity College to have so many great names attached to it. To bring it so directly into the life of the court is a really extraordinary discovery. Now the most exciting moment of all for me. Thrillingly, Alison and I bring together Anne Boleyn and Thomas Cromwell's two near-identical books of ours. Well, Alison, this is a very special moment. You've got there the book from the Wren Library that belonged to Thomas Cromwell. Yes. And I am holding a book that belonged to Anne Boleyn that lives here at Hever. This is incredible to have these two books together here. It is. Let's compare them. Let me have a look at this, because this is a rather amazing book, isn't it? It is. And do they look the same? Oh, so this is the same page? Yes, so they're both the Coronation of the Virgin. And like the difference between the books that belonged to Anne and Catherine, the illumination is slightly different. Each it one is, yeah. is individual. Yes, Anne has this oval with the blue edges to that oval, 
and then on the opposite page you can see she's got a gold border whereas this one it's just a plain illumination of the virgin and then there's no gold border on the opposite side although i would say that the miniaturist is doing finer work on Cromwell's book I know. than on Anne's. I, so we thought that Anne had the silver package and Catherine had the bronze, but maybe Cromwell had the gold. The illumination in all of them is absolutely beautiful. I mean, I suppose he had slightly more room to work with this one. Yes. Whereas well, that's I, a little bit more compact in Anne's. Anne's has also been cut down, so we've lost some of it, whereas this is in the original it binding. It is, yeah, it's the original size. Does it give you a bit of a thrill that you're actually holding the book that Thomas Cromwell owned and held and it was in this binding, it looked exactly as it does now? I mean, I have to admit, even after everything, it still hasn't quite hit me that this is Thomas Cromwell's book. It will now. <laughs> now, what does it mean that Anne and Cromwell and Catherine all had the same book? This is the heart of the matter, isn't it? It is, yeah. At the moment, it's all mainly sort of theory as to why they would have owned the same book, but more than likely it was a gift from someone, this elusive person that we're not 100% sure who would have gifted them. So it could well be Henry VIII himself. Yes. But all manner of other people could have commissioned these as well. well exactly. And they could have just been a bit of a very popular item. Well, yes, we know that the gifting of books was a popular sort of thing to do. But we've got a number of ideas on who it might be, the original gifter. We'd like one person over everybody else, but we have to keep working on it, I think. Can I see the outside of this one? Because the binding is what distinguishes this. This yes. is Anne Boleyn's book, but it, not in the binding that Anne would have known, whereas no. this one is in Cromwell's binding, as it were. It is, yes. Yeah. So Anne's was rebound, as we know, in the late 16th century when her signature was cut. So it's just blind stamped calf, whereas this is the original binding. So this would have been velvet, but it's now worn away. Yeah, dark blue velvet. Unfortunately, the pile has gone just there. You can just see a little bit of the blue coming through. And then this huge garnish at the centre. I know, yes. And silver gilt. So that's silver with a gilt gold leaf on top of it. Yes, it is. And then you've actually still got some of the gilding remaining on the outside of the pages as well. And that's so clear in the picture, isn't it? It is, yeah. And then mm. another great garnet so one has got lost along yes the way. so you can see this one's been damaged at some point oh, yes. um, but then this one has been lost completely and then on the back and then on the back we have another garnet and this is the same shape as the one on the clasp so it possibly is, yes. they lost the one on the back and, replaced and they put it. it on the yeah very possible yeah and such beautiful filigree work it's gorgeous isn't it it's so mango <laughs> That's the goldsmith who did That's the work. That's the goldsmith, yes. Pierre Mango. Wow, it's just beautiful. And even actually, if you look at the top of the book, it's even got more details there along the edge. It really is a thing of beauty. So yes. the book is precious as an object and as a book. Well, yeah, exactly. Absolutely beautiful. I mean, it is absolutely clear to me, visually, there's no doubt about it. It is the book from the painting, isn't it? It is, yes, 100%. I wish Hilary Mantel was still alive I to know. learn of this. It's such a shame. This discovery is a wonderful piece of historical detective work. 
proved through very thorough investigations, testing theories and checking evidence. It's been achieved by the collaboration of many scholars and like all the best discoveries, it raises a new series of questions and intrigues. Watch this space. And if this podcast has whetted your appetite to see Cromwell's Book of Hours, do check out my new film with the curators at Hever Castle on historyhit.com. And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and my researcher, Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built – a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.